Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. God bless you, get woke. Folks, MIP is now COVID free, meaning free to all subscribers as we navigate this pandemic. We're thinking about everyone and we've got to get through this together. So for a limited time, no fee to subscribe to make it plain on your favorite podcast app. All right, ladies and gentlemen, a big, big week at the Supreme Court for civil rights, in particular for the LGBTQ community. I thought it'd be good for us to talk about that and talk about it with those who are either directly involved or directly impacted by it. I'm gonna introduce first uh, our dear friend of the show, um, one of our most frequent uh, contributors. Um, he is a columnist, a contributor to the Washington Blade, uh, as well as one of the longtime activists in the leadership of the Gay and Lesbian Activist Alliance in Washington, D.C. and frankly uh, had a lot to do with uh, building uh, my allyship with the LGBTQ community 
and him building his own allyship with the African-American activist community in Washington, D.C. and beyond. Rick Rosendahl is once again with us, thankful to have him. Also one who is not a stranger either. She has been frequently um, representing blackcommentator.com uh, here on the broadcast. And today um, she joins us again. I just want to uh, remind you uh, that she's a visiting scholar in the Religion and Conflict Transformation Program uh, at Boston University School of Theology, and she's the Boston she's the Boston voice for Detours After American Heritage Trail. She's also uh, the host of All Revved Up on WGBH in Boston, and also. Uh, now a podcast uh, as well. So we're happy to have with us uh, the Reverend Irene Monroe, and we welcome her back to the show. Um, she has been a voice as well for the LGBT community um, from the perspective of people of color um, and how this might affect them. So we'll talk to her uh, about that as well. And last um, but um, not least, uh, one who was involved in even an amicus brief um, when it comes to this uh, important ruling. Uh, he's been outspoken about it. We're going to get uh, his take on, on all of this and, and just how important uh, a civil rights victory um, this is. He's a partner at uh, Kaplan Hecker, uh, but most importantly, uh, he's an adjunct at Georgetown Law, which means uh, unlike Reverend Irene and unlike Rick, he's a Hoya like me. So we'll, we'll thank him today, Hoya Hoya Saxon. Uh, Attorney Joshua Matz is with us. Welcome to all of you, first of all, uh, and good to see all of you. Josh, if you don't mind, I'd like to uh, begin with you. Uh, you actually wrote an, an amicus brief. And from what I can tell, your brief uh, had a lot to do with influencing this ruling, if I'm not mistaken. Well, I appreciate that. You know, it's funny, you never know. An amicus brief, just for those who may not have that at the tip of their tongue, is it's literally an amicus curiae brief. It means a friend of the court. And these are briefs that are filed on behalf of parties in the world that may care about a case at the court or have a perspective on it and want to make sure that the court has that available to them as they decide it. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote a brief with Professor Larry Tribe uh, at the Harvard Law School on behalf of uh, four former solicitors general of the United States, in which we argued that, you know, there are a lot of, there were a lot of issues in play in this case. And our basic pitch was you don't have to answer most of them because it's actually a really easy case. All you have to do is take the plain text of the Civil Rights Act, apply it to the facts here, and you inevitably reach the conclusion that Title VII prohibits anti-gay and anti-trans discrimination. And that was, in fact, the reasoning that the majority opinion written by Justice Neil Gorsuch adopted. Um, and in many ways, I think, did track the argument in our brief. I have no idea whether he read it or was influenced by it. Um, but whatever may have happened, I'm sure glad he reached that outcome. Uh, and if, if we did play any part in it, I, I, you know, I feel honored and lucky to have helped the court reach that, that correct decision. Josh, were you surprised at this ruling? Uh, I, 
Sort of. Um, I mean, I'm always surprised when the Roberts court gets a case right. And I'm doubly surprised when the majority for doing so is six to three. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I thought Neil Gorsuch was the likely swing vote. That's why I wrote a brief that was essentially, I might as well have written Deal, Dear Neil on the cover. You know, it, it used to be that when just, I clerked for Justice Anthony Kennedy, and it used to be that, you know, Justice Kennedy was the likely swing vote. And you'd have all these, they were called Kennedy briefs that were written in his style. I wrote a Gorsuch brief, which is not my natural way of being in the world, but I took a go at it. And, you know, I think people thought he might be the swing voter because of his commitment to textualism. Um, but it was not a sure thing. And at the argument, he expressed inclinations both ways. So there was a lot of anxiety about that. The huge surprise in the case, uh, in many ways, is that John Roberts, the chief justice, joined his opinion. Um, the chief has never said anything that I think made anyone think he was particularly likely to reach this outcome. Uh, but it's great that he did, because it really confirms a, a decisive majority on the court stands behind this ruling and sees the justice and rightness of the outcome. Uh, before I move on, just real, you mentioned textualism. I've seen that a lot about the ruling in this case. Explain to our, our audience how textualism won the day. Sure. So textualism is just a fancy word to describe a way of reading a text. And so if you're a textualist, and this is an idea that is most commonly associated with the late justice Antonin Scalia, and that Neil Gorsuch, his, his heir on the court, has now taken up, the idea is you, you should really only look at the plain words on the page. Don't look at legislative history. Don't look at what people may have said they thought it would mean. You're not trying to figure out the basic purpose of the law and apply the purpose you should be very wary of trying to figure out from context or structure or circumstance what it means, although you can consider that if necessary. To a textualist, the starting point and often the ending point of reading a law is look at the words at the page, apply formal rules of English interpretation, and figure out what they mean and ignore basically everything else. Um, it, it's not the way normal people uh, read anything or interact with each other, um, but it you know it has its it, it has its adherents, and one of them is Neil Gorsuch. The theory is that the only thing Congress passes into law is the text of the statute, and therefore the only thing you can legitimately consider is the written word. Um, and that was the that was the approach that Justice Gorsuch took. It was the approach that I advocated in an effort at helping to persuade him. And that's all that textualism means. And when we talk about the written word, wasn't one of those words actually the, the words on the basis of sex or the word sex, correct? Yeah, the statute prohibits discrimination because of such individuals' sex. Yeah, yeah. Can I jump in here, Mark? Uh, yeah, I'm coming to you next, Rick, but, but go ahead. Well, um, you, uh, in your brief, Joshua, quote Justice Scalia and Brian Garner, and so does uh, Gorsuch in his, in his opinion, um, explaining that the presumed, this is a quote from Scalia and Garner, the presumed point of using general words is to produce a general, general coverage, not to leave room for courts to recognize ad hoc exceptions. But Justice Alito, in his dissent uh, this week, um, writes, quote, uh, and I want to get your reaction to this, so let me read it. The court's, this is uh, Alito, the court's opinion is like a pirate ship. It sails under a textualist flag, but what it actually represents is a theory of statutory interpretation 
that Justice Scalia excoriated, the theory that courts should update old statutes so that they better reflect the current values of society. Alito accuses the court of legislating from the bench and of breathtaking arrogance. What say you, Councilman? <laughs> what say I? Well, you know, and I want to make sure everyone has a chance to participate, obviously, in the, in the discussion. You know, I, my, my, my quick stab at that is, you know, there's a fight here over what textualism means. And Scalia is very famously associated with textualism. So it's not surprised that they're both conjuring his ghost and claiming that surely it would agree with them. You know, I think Justice Gorsuch does respond to that, you know, because in, in many ways what the issue, you know, just to sort of simply state the issue in the case, you know, the way that Neil Gorsuch thinks about it, if you fire somebody because they're a man who's attracting, attracted to a man or a woman who's attracted to a woman, it's literally impossible to explain why you fired them without repeatedly making reference to their sex and the sex of the person they're attracted to. Um, and if you fire someone for being transgender, you're firing them because of your beliefs about the sex they were assigned at birth, the sex that they identify as, and the way in which you think they're performing or failing to perform their sex correctly. And so Justice Gorsuch says, look, that's obviously because of sex. You literally can't explain why you fired them without repeatedly making reference to your beliefs about their sex and the sex of others and sort of sex is all over this. And you know, for him as a textualist, the word that matters here is not sex, it's because of. When you fire somebody because of being gay, because of just means that you are accounting for, that you are taking some account of sex. And by any common sense definition of the term, you're doing that. Justice Alito in his pirate ship analogy says, that's ridiculous. The people who wrote these words and everyone who would have read them at the time they were written understood because of sex to mean you're firing them because they're a man or because they're a woman or because of things inextricably intertwined with that. And being gay and being trans are different. That is not because of sex. You know, and you know, uh, one way of viewing this is that these are just very clever lawyers engaging in word games. Uh, a different view of looking at it is that these are very interesting and different theoretical approaches about how to engage in the practice of textualism. You know, and, and maybe yet another approach to it is that, you know, what, George, what Justice Gorsuch is recognizing and Justice Alito is failing to recognize is that ever since, the, ever since Congress in 1964 enacted Title VII, the Supreme Court has read it in ways that would have absolutely astonished the people who wrote it. Sexual harassment was not defined in a dictionary in 1964. Gender stereotyping was not a thing in 1964, right? Anyone who has studied the history of that period knows not only were they not prohibited, like most of Congress was probably engaged in both of those things in their offices on a regular basis. Um, it was kind of a horrifying time in which to live from that perspective. And, you know, the court has nonetheless said that, you know, Congress wrote with broad language. This is where that quote matters. This is why we quoted Justice Scalia, right? Broad words have broad implications. And the fact that all of those implications weren't obvious to the people who wrote the words doesn't mean that they aren't direct implications of the statute. Right. And that's really where Justice Gorsuch comes down. If because of sex prohibits sexual harassment and it prohibits treating mothers worse and it prohibits people get firing people based on gender stereotypes, that reasoning, whatever gets you there, also gets you here. 
And Alito just doesn't have an answer to that. And that's why Gorsuch is right and he is wrong. Sorry, I get very excited about this, as you can tell. Well, you know, it's interesting. I think this is one of, I think this is one of those times a textual reading certainly worked in the advantage of LGBTQ folks, really, because textual reading really is a debate and a politic about hermeneutics. And usually when we do a textual reading, it is intentionally to be devoid of its applicability, the context in which it is written. And it also keeps like a, a kind of white male hegemony voice in terms of domineering the text. But listen, it worked this time. You know, it, it just actually worked because this is the kind of argument, biblical arguments that we get into. And an example of that is that while this law passed, now you got the religious right, you know, in a kerfuffle about it violates the, the fact that now you cannot fire me because of my sexual orientation or gender identity. Now you got the religious right up and saying, well, my Bible tells me, and that is a textual reading, a literal reading. So this is just one of those snafus that I call where textual, textual reading work for LGBTQ. And, and, and that's all I can say about it, but it's not to get away from the brilliance and the, and the, and the genius in which, you know, uh, you've argued it. And, and present it, but let's just know that, like even when we read a textual reading of the constitution and the preamble says, you know, all men are created equal, it leaves out women, marginal people, people who don't own land. So this is just to me, and it's not to minimize it, but it's one of those times it actually worked. Um, Rick, how big is this? And, and how much of, of this ended up being really uh, a collective exhale for many people in the LGBT community who have either been discriminated against or who fear discrimination every single day at work. This is one of the biggest moments in LGBTQ uh, rights movement history, uh, possibly bigger than the one five years ago where the, the Obergefell v. Hodges case gave us marriage equality from sea to shining sea. Now we have employment protections from sea to shining sea. And this, I, I'm sure this is the biggest ruling on uh, in favor of transgender equality. Um, it's interesting, the timing of these things. Five years ago, when President Obama in the morning responded, I believe it was June 16th, um, 2015, in the morning in the Rose Garden, he celebrated uh, the Supreme Court ruling, Anthony Kennedy's ruling in Obergefell, giving us marriage equality. Uh, that night, the north front of the White House was, was lit up in, and it makes me emotional just remembering it, just talking about it, in the rainbow flag colors. And, 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 um, but in between those two thing, events on that day, Obama flew down uh, to South Carolina and spoke at the funeral for Clementine Pinckney and, and the eight uh, people that were with him in that Bible studies class that Wednesday evening when they were, when, when this guy um, prayed with them, this white supremacist prayed with them and then shot them all point blank and made martyrs of them. Uh, so those two, uh, the tragedy and, and the joy and everything sort of mixed together. That was, of course, when presidents sang Amazing Grace. Um, 
and the organist figured out what key he was in and, and, and picked up and, and accompanied him because nobody knew other than uh, Barack and, and uh, uh, Michelle. Uh, this week, we have a similar juxtaposition. We have um, this great advance uh, for um, empl employment uh, protections. And yet at the same time, we had people in the streets of Atlanta protesting against um, the murder of a man essentially for sleep, falling asleep in his car, but more specifically for panicking over being shackled. Now, why would someone uh, panic over be and resist being handcuffed? Well, uh, George Floyd did not resist being handcuffed and he ended up dead. Um, so um, there's the juxtaposition of these things is a reminder to us, not just that our work is not done, but that we are inextricably bound up together in a common struggle. And the fancy word uh, intersectionality is just another word for recognizing that we are part of a diverse community and we have to act like it and make sure that our policies and practices recognize that and act and follow that. Irene? Yeah, I'm, I'm delighted that you brought that up, but I don't want us to segue too quickly. Clearly, as a, a, the white, and I need to make this distinction, the white queer community, LGBTQ community can say Black Lives Matter, but yet at the same time, that look at the rampant racism that is in their community and looking at how tra Black trans women or the Black trans community are disproportionately not only marginalized, but killed on the streets of America. It's, you know, it's very, very interesting in how the, the, white, the white LGBT community in many ways have pimped from the playbook of the, of the Black civil rights movement to advance their cause, but to not take us along with it. So we have marriage equality, 19, I mean, I'm sorry, 2015, which was wonderful. Um, comes straight out of the playbook of Mildred Loving versus the Commonwealth. This passage just uh, the other day on in terms of discrimination is comes out of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And, you, and the interesting thing is, is um, see, one of the things that I've always noticed about the, 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 the LGBT community when it comes to photo op you know, moments to highlight diversity, they're all in it. When it comes from take, appropriating, and not that they don't have a right to, out of the Black Civil Rights you know, playbook, it works beautifully. But yet, you know, we have um, Trans Day of Remembrance come out of, because of this Black trans woman here in Boston, Rita Hester. But again, and it's been going on for now, I think 30 years. Uh, again, no action around that. Pride, let me just say this, and it's not just particular to Boston where I am. When Pride is every June, and every June what also revs up with Pride are the fault lines along race, class, and gender. So the point is, is that, yep, we can look outside of our community, but it is rampant within our community. And, and, the, and the issue is, is that while I'm so glad that we have marriage equality, I'm so glad that now you can't discriminate against me, you know, in, in terms of employment, but the needed work for LGBT community to get behind us trying to survive COVID, because, you know, I'm doing funerals while we're in this pandemic here. And disproportionately of the folks I am 
officiating their funerals and homecoming are Black, LGBTQ folks, and prima- primarily trans. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we want to lift up the names, too, of, of those um, who have been found dead in just in the past week, uh, Remy Fells and Rhea Milton. Um, black trans lives certainly um, matter, too. And, and all good points, Irene. Um, and I, it, I hope you don't mind me just flagging very quickly uh, how overpoweringly strongly I agree with everything Irene just said. And, you know, the, the gate, I mean, I was a law clerk to Justice Kennedy the year he decided Obergefell. I remember standing with him in the court the day that decision came out. And one of the thoughts that occurred to me that morning was that the gay rights struggle in many ways began at Stonewall. I mean, obviously there's a long history. It began with, with us rioting against police that were beating us and using excessive force. Right. And the fact is that you know armed agents of the state keeping people down because they're different and because they're vulnerable is not an experience known only to one community. You know, I am, I'm a religious Jew, I'm a proud gay man, you know, both of those parts of my identity, I think, you know, teach that. You, you know, know what? I, I agree with you. I so agree with you. But the interesting thing that that you're right, that it's LGBTQ people and, and black folks. We have a shared history of violence and police brutality. But when we even get to the story of Stonewall, which I was there as a teenager, again, you have the bleaching and the whitewashing of the black trans women and men who were there. So again, this, and, and the issue is, is that again, it's the white dominant, you know, queer community that holds the revisionist history of that narrative. And so when you, when there's this whole notion about, well, why can't we get along? Some of it has to start with the fact that yes, you might understand heterosexism and the pernicious nature in which it impacts your life, but don't get how racism impacts us too. And we worry in the same way in terms of an outcome that certainly befell George Floyd. So the point is, is that I love all this, like I get it, but the point is, is that where the power is, where the decision-making is, you don't get it. And, 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 And the interesting thing is I find the fact that we had to take a pride parade and turn it into trans, you know, a trans parade has everything to do with this moment when we've been arguing this for years. So right. it seems like a pimp, opportunistic moment, and you, you, it, it just doesn't have any validity behind, it's good to speak it, but the actual walk, walk it is another thing. And the thing is, is that for white men in the white community, they're not going to give up white privilege. Okay, and the reason why a lot of these bills get, got passed and they didn't feel that they needed the black community is because their white privilege understands this. The laws will work for them. Let me give you a classic example here. We might have three, but I know we might have two lynchings going on. In the 1950s, we have been trying to pass an anti-lynching bill. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, the day that we did the first home going for George Floyd, Floyd, uh, we tried to pass it on the floor. And Paul Rand just 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 disintegrated it. So right. when we have asked you, like, walk with us around AIDS, because AIDS is not an issue now because it's a black and brown issue. When we ask you to walk with us around discrimination around housing, or can we come to your bars, 
or help us with the COVID. It's like, this is not our problem. But Irene, you're not suggesting that Rand Paul is, is LGBT. Right. No, no, no. Well, that I don't know. Now that that would be a closet. No, in I mean, I, I think everybody here he is walking with us on that. It's the it's the the, the privileged white men who um, uh, present themselves as hetero, but as Rick will remind us, often um, present something else. You want to just for the record, once again, you want to share your uh, uh, your theory of, of relativity. Uh, Rick, me? Uh, I, I, you don't mean um, Paul's law? Uh, oh, oh! When somebody, because I was recently had another theory, which is very, I very rudely called magic cracker theory about president, the, the capacity of some white people, the belief that they can make change reality by uh, repeating the same nonsense over and over again, uh, and Trump certainly is guilty of that. No, but I had a theory that whenever somebody is not just opposed to gay rights, but is really vehement and obsessed about it, it's a rebuttable presumption that one of three things is true. They are a closet case, or they have an estranged gay child, or um, uh, what's the other one? But they have, they have some personal issues um, involved. And I, I, you'll, you'll note that I did not mention uh, the senior senator from South Carolina. Um, you just did that. You just... He addressed it, by the way. Uh, <laughs> Just for the record, let me read it. The actual text is a Rosendahl's Law. One's obsessive hostility toward gays suggests she or he is either closeted or estranged from a gay relative. But, but Rick, before we go in, I have one more question uh, for Josh. Um, what are your thoughts about you know, what uh, Irene has shared? Uh, and while this is a victory in some respects, just like everything else in life, we still have to deal with issues of race, even within the LGBTQ community. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more strongly with that. And, you know, the reality is that in the gay community, I think, as in so many others, uh, there are forms of privilege that people take for granted mm -hmm. and that they exercise in all sorts of ways that allow them to ignore uh, the, you know, the circumstances and experiences of others and that allow them to write those experiences out of their lives. And, you know, I, look, I think it's a good thing that the court got this case right. I think many of the people that it will ultimately protect may be people of color, um, as well as white people within the LGBT community. Um, but there's no denying that there is discrimination within the LGBT community. Uh, there's no denying that the LGBT community is not does not always have the vision it should have to understand the commonalities between parts of its experience and the experience of the black community and other communities. And that it sometimes lacks the vision to realize that there are experiences we don't have in common and that all we can try to do is empathize and be allies and understand and fight to make the world better. Uh, and so I, I just couldn't agree more. And I, and I recognize that there is a, a burden on the, on the community as a whole, although I certainly can't speak for the whole community, that there is a burden to do better and to be better. So let me just ask you this in terms of the case. I, I spoke with uh, Professor Linda Briggs on yesterday at UMass Amherst, um, and we talked about it. We were on another subject, but she shared her thoughts. And, you know, she still says there's some concerns because you're going to have these cases. Clearly, the court is rude, but Trump is important. A lot of crazy judges. 
And these then these things go back to the Supreme Court. They get another pass at them. Uh, is it wise to necessarily lead people to believe that we are completely out of the woods? For example, uh, and, and help me if and this is already addressed in the ruling. But, you know, in some of these civil rights rulings, um, the court has said, well, um, race has to be the only factor or the primary factor. It can't just be part of the discrimination. You got to be just straight up racist from top to bottom in your decision making. Um, what happens here? In other words, if someone is discriminated against who's LGBT uh, and, and files suit or files to defend themselves, uh, are we going to have courts to say, yeah, but there were other things here and it wasn't just about sex. You have to prove that it's absolutely and completely about this. I mean, we've seen those kind of games played. Well, what, what's your take on that, Josh? Are we out of the woods in that regard? No, we are not out of the woods. Uh, we're not out of the woods in any number of ways. The court left open questions about whether there may be religious freedom exceptions to this rule. Uh, it left open questions about whether they might try to carve out exceptions for bathrooms or locker rooms or athletics. Um, and all of the rules that the court has erected in civil rights law that harm the black community, that harm other communities, that make it hard to prove a civil rights case, sometimes in ways that make no sense. All of those rules apply here. Uh, you know, all they're saying is that you take the existing set of rules for proving employment discrimination. And now if you can say that you were fired because you're gay or trans, those rules will also apply to you and protect you. But this is a Supreme Court that has weakened civil rights law in so many ways. Right. And you know, that, that will absolutely travel with this. Uh, we are not out of the woods. You're right that there are lower courts filled with judges uh, who do not have justice in their hearts when it comes to these cases. Uh, and I think this battle, it's a huge win, but the war is not over. Uh, so Rick, we've got to stay ever vigilant. Oh, always. I mean, as uh, Reverend Monroe uh, was talking about, uh, especially uh, trans people of color, there is no more highly at risk uh, part of the LGBTQ community than that. That has certainly been true here in DC and um, people are driven into sex work part, partly because of employment discrimination and housing discrimination. And, and, they, and one of the, the places where people are working the stroll and, and, and subjecting themselves to, to, to safety risks for that reason is at Eastern Avenue at the Eastern end of the district. Um, I've, I've attended a vigil uh, for someone right there on Dix Street Northeast, uh, a, a trans woman who was who was murdered, and um, you cannot get any serious legislation passed in a jurisdiction as diverse as D.C. without doing coalition work. And as Bernice Johnson Regan of Sweet Honey and the Rock said, if you're doing coalition work and it's easy, you're not doing coalition work. And and so I, I've enjoyed spending forty years doing activism in D.C. partly because of how much you learn about other parts of the community, it's always, there is always more work to do. Um, and a key part of it is those of us that are more fortunate in terms of not being born a suspect um, have to spend some of that unearned and unmerited privilege on behalf of our brothers and sisters who through no fault of their own 
have a much greater weight to bear. And with police forces that the DC Council started doing some, some reforming uh, actions this uh, last week, um, you and I have discussed for many years the fact that police forces have roots in, in slave patrols. We have to totally reimagine uh, public safety uh, and, um, and, and not just be act like we are people suffering from Stockholm syndrome and we just can't let go of, of, of policies and practices that have failed large portions of our community. I want to thank each of you. This will not be the last time we have this discussion. This has been uh, enlightening and lively. Uh, Joshua Matz, uh, who wrote an amicus brief uh, that may very well have made a significant contribution to this ruling this week. Our dear friend Rick Rosendahl, the Washington Blade and Gay and Lesbian Activist Alliance, uh, and the Reverend Irene Monroe of the All Revved Up podcast in Boston University. I want to thank each of you for joining us today for this discussion. And we will remain ever vigilant. I have no shame in saying uh, I'm an ally uh, myself. Uh, so we'll get this done. Thank you all, okay? Thank you. Thank you, Father. All right. God, you are our refuge. Send our ancestors to guard our doors. Cast out this virus from our communities and our bodies. Heal, bless, and protect everyone listening and their loved ones. Thank you for listening to Make It Plain and Get Woke. Remember to listen, like, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. If all minds are clear, it has been made plain. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.